Well, good morning. Beautiful, cool morning that we have this uh, February day. Have you ever, well, maybe you're like me, you enjoy reading, and have you become engrossed in the book that you're reading? I, you know, when I would read, especially when I was younger and reading uh, maybe a little bit more fiction at the time, don't have as much time for fiction now, I would just become engrossed in what I was reading. Uh, my my mom would often often try to just get me to go outside, and I love the outdoors. But she had to. If I was in the middle of a good book, it took a lot of effort to get me to go outside. And when you're reading it, and when you're engrossed in a really good book or story, you find yourself thinking and acting and imagining that you're actually in the story itself. I remember when I first read Lord of the Rings and the trilogy. I felt as if I were part of the story and had trouble not wishing and almost hating putting the book down and leaving that land of hobbits, elves, giants, and dwarves. Storytelling is an ancient art form. Cultures have elevated and held in high esteem those who are particularly adept at relating timeless tales, stories, or telling new ones, valuing the way in which they could transport the hearer, or we might say the reader, into the world of the story. There's a reason that Pilgrim's Progress is one of the most popular fictional works of all time. We are hardwired to love storytelling. We love stories. I mean, children will listen to the same story over and over and over again when they might lose patience with almost anything else. And while some may use narrative or storytelling as in an attempt to bypass critical thinking, the best of storytelling reinforces logic and reasoning so that the whole becomes more impactful than its parts. It brings together the emotions and the intellect. Stories capture our attention. They appeal to our whole being, to our thoughts, to our emotions, and to our reasoning in ways that simple didactic teaching cannot. And this was not lost on Jesus. He, after all, created us. Thus, it's no surprise that Jesus was a masterful storyteller. Through his teaching, he carefully appealed to the emotions as well as the mind, to the whole person in his teaching. There's a reason that his enemies responded so viscerally to his teaching. It's because it struck a chord that resonated through their whole being. This morning, we're going to examine one of the most frequent story telling or story types of the New Testament, parables. Not only to look at the meaning and use of parables, but the importance of drawing near to the storyteller himself in order to understand the eternal truths that are contained within parables. So if you haven't already opened up your Bible, you can turn there to Matthew 13 and read along with me as we read a little bit larger section of text this morning that formally introduces us to what we'd be called parabolic teaching of Jesus' ministry. This is not the first time he's used parables, but this really introduces the teaching of parables into the ministry of Christ. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13, we read, That day, it connects with what's been taking place previously in chapter 12. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down. 
the whole crowd was gathered on the beach, and he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and birds came, and they ate them. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. Immediately they they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root, and so they withered away. Others fell among the thorns. The thorns came up and choked them out. Others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And the disciples came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Forever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus' ability to teach through story is really nowhere so evident as his use of parables. In fact, when we think of Jesus' teaching, if you were to just walk up or someone were to walk up to you and say, you know, think about Jesus' teaching for a moment, probably what first jumps into mind are parables. Maybe a specific parable. Maybe this parable, one of his most most well-known parables of the sower. Here in chapter 13, we really begin to note something of a transition or a movement in Jesus' ministry as parables take on a more significant and central role to his teaching ministry. James Montgomery Boyce notes There are 27 parables in the four Gospels, most of which come after Matthew 13. Some of them are similar to one another and may be a retelling of the same parable at a different time or place, but the fact remains that Jesus continually and frequently used parables, this genre and form of storytelling. John likewise tells us that many more things were spoken and taught by Jesus than were recorded. In fact, in the text this morning, we saw in verse 3 that when Jesus spoke that day, he spoke many things to them in parables. We only have a small sampling of what he said that day. If then we take the Gospels as drawing from examples of parables Jesus taught, it's safe to assume that there were many, many more parables that were spoken. The fact that they were not recorded for us today does not make them unauthoritative. Everything Jesus spoke was inspired, divinely so. But through the work of the Spirit, the gospel writers were moved to record these parables, those things that were necessary throughout all generations. And that's what we have before us this morning. 
And before we delve into our discussion of parables, I want to set the context. Let's look again at these first couple of verses of Matthew 13. In verse 1, we see Jesus exiting the house. Now, what house is that? Well, it's the house where he had just left, where his mother and brothers had come while he was teaching, seeking to see him. This is where he had redefined and reoriented our understanding of family. Describing those who are your fa- his family as those who have faith in Christ, who believe in him, who follow him, who are disciples of him. It's possible this was still Peter's house there in Capernaum in Galilee, near the sea where he had previously been staying, where he had taught, where he would healed Peter's mother-in-law. We know if you read later on in chapter 13 that they returned back to the house where Jesus had further interaction with his disciples down in verse 36. So it's likely that that first interaction at the end of chapter 12 was in the morning. Maybe the day had started to heat up. The crowds were packed in. His family couldn't even get to him. Now, if you're in a really tight quarters and it starts to get really hot, what do you want to do? Go get some fresh air. So it's likely that they headed out as the heat of the day began to set on and they headed down to the Sea of Galilee, to the lake there. It was just a short walk down from the house. Whatever the reason, he walks down to the beach on this northern side of the Sea of Galilee that day. And when he got to the beach, he sat down and resumed his teaching. Mark tells us that he began teaching to his disciples. We know from Mark, we know from Matthew, in fact, the response and the questioning of the disciples in verse 10, that the disciples were present. In fact, they were likely the original audience Jesus was addressing, just like the Sermon on the Mount, where he goes up onto the mount, he sits down, the disciples draw near to him, he begins to teach, and as he's teaching, the crowds build, and they build, and they build. And then he begins to redirect his teaching to address the crowds at whole. It wasn't long before, just like the Sermon on the Mount, the crowd swelled in size. Without the limitations previously imposed by those enclosed four walls of the house, the crowds grew in number. To the point where Jesus had to get up again, this time climb into a boat and go maybe a few meters offshore. Where he sat back down, as was the custom of rabbis or teachers, and began to teach. You can almost picture it. A bright, clear day, maybe not quite as chilly as this one, but a bright, clear day. A few lazy clouds drifting in the sky, a gentle and cooling breeze blowing in off the lake. The soft and soothing sound of the waves lapping at the shore. With the rhythmic creaking and rocking of a boat upon which Jesus sat. There's an area in the northern side of the Sea of Galilee that tradition says is the location of this teaching. It's an inlet or a cove that forms something of a horseshoe shape. It's a U-shaped. And it has hills that ascend very quickly up to the side. You get the beach and then the hills run up very quickly. And it would have provided, if this was indeed the the place, it would have provided a natural amphitheater with acoustics that are perfect for an address to a large crowd. The cove is even referred to as the cove of the parables or the cove of the sower today. It was here or in a similar type of setting that the crowds continued to amass and Jesus began to teach them. And again, we don't know everything that Jesus said to them that day, just as we don't know all that Jesus was teaching in the house prior to the arrival of his mother and his brothers. 
Matthew does tell us, however, that Jesus spoke many things in parables. And he provides us with seven or perhaps eight of them, depending on how you interpret verse 52. And in the parallel account, Mark doesn't actually, he doesn't even list all of these parables. He lists a couple of them. He doesn't list all of them. But Mark gives us yet another parable that is not recorded in Matthew. So we have a record of at least nine of the parables that were given that day. And as the crowds lean in to hear Jesus speak from the boat, Matthew introduces the first of these parables, or the parable of the sower. Now this morning we're not going to examine this parable in detail. We're going to instead examine the nature and the purpose of parables in Jesus' ministry. Next week we're going to return to this parable and to the interpretation Jesus provides in verses 18 through 23. But for now, we want to focus in on Jesus' use of parables and why was he using parables. What was the purpose? What is the significance? How does it impact my study and my reading of Scripture when I come across these parables? Because of the increase in parables beginning in verse 13 and because of the discussion Jesus has with his disciples and the reasons he provides for speaking in parables, it's really important for us to take time to note this shift in emphasis. Some have gone so far as to say this marks a significant and markedly different transition in Jesus' ministry. It certainly is an increase in the use of parables. And so we want to know what are their purpose and how do we go about interpreting them? Chapter 13, as we noted, contains eight parables. I do include there verse 52. I think there's good reason to include it as the eighth and final parable in this section. And each of these parables contain the same central theme. I could ask you to guess, and if you've been with us through the study of Matthew, you'd probably guess rightly. They all have as their theme the kingdom of God. It's not a surprise. Jesus' ministry and his teaching is already focused on the kingdom of God over and over again. Since we were first introduced to it in Matthew 1. What is unique, however, is this increasing use of storytelling or parables to explain the nature and significance of the kingdom and the role of its citizens. So what is a parable? Well, a parable is closely related to what in Hebrew... In the Old Testament, it was referred to as a mashal, which is frequently translated. In fact, 22 of the 38 times that word is used in the Old Testament, in the Greek translation, it's translated by the Greek term parabole or parable. A mashal can include proverbs, maxims, metaphors, similes, allegories, fables, riddles, taunts, stories, all of which embody some truth. However, as time went on, and we see this with all types of words, as time went on, the term parable began to take on some much more limited and specific meaning. Throughout the intertestamental period, those 400 years leading up from the closing of the Old Testament to Christ's arrival, during that time period, it became almost exclusively linked to an extended metaphor or story. It's good to understand the semantic range and where a word comes from or ways in which it has been used in the past, but it's equally important, perhaps more so, to understand the development of the term and specifically how it was used at that time. 
because it had a much more limited and focused use within Jewish teaching by the time of the New Testament. To that end, it's important to recognize that the, really what the New Testament parable is not, and so that's where we'll start. First off, the New Testament parable is not a fable. A fable, uh, it's a story which is very irreal. The most famous of which are probably Aesop's fables. You've heard of those. They were written around 500 B.C., a little before that. They don't describe real situations. Instead, you find animals talking to each other and other irreal situations that are, in, are given in order to teach something, usually regarding character or morality or how the world works. Of Aesop's fables, you may be familiar with the lion and the mouse, where one day a lion is sleeping and a mouse runs across his paw, angers the lion. The lion captures the mouse, puts his paw on him, and the mouse says, please, sir, let me go. And the lion, deciding he's not worth the bite, says, okay, I'll, I'll let you go. And the mouse promises to help him sometime. Well, it's only a few days later that the lion finds himself trapped by hunters, ensnared by ropes. He begins to roar with a loud voice. The mouse runs to rescue him and chews away at the ropes, freeing the lion. And the moral of the story, as Aesop relates it, is really, in essence, what we find Jesus proclaiming just do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But that's not what a parable is. It's not a fable. It's not animals talking to one another. It's also not an allegory. There are allegories in Scripture, and some parables may even have allegorical elements. But parables as a whole are distinct from allegories. In an allegory, nearly everything has meaning or symbolism. The most famous Christian allegory is the Pilgrim's Progress. Whether you've read the original John Bunyan, whether you've read in a bridge, whether you've listened to the story, most of us are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. And we understand how almost everything within there has portrayed some aspect of the Christian life. Compared to an allegory, a parable has a more limited range of meanings and intentions. Not every element of, an, of a parable is a type or a direct representation of someone or something else. A parable, then, most closely relates to a metaphor. The difference between a metaphor and an allegory is that in an allegory, you can say, this is that. Whereas in a metaphor, you say, this is like that. It is similar to that. So in a metaphor, whether stated or implied, you often find terms such as like or as. A parable is usually, or not usually, but frequently, more developed or drawn out than a metaphor, often presented in story form. But again, that doesn't mean there cannot be allegorical elements or that undermines what a parable is, but the parable as a whole is not an allegory, which means we have to use care not to try and press interpretations and meanings and parts of a parable beyond what the author intends. As James Montgomery Boyce notes, not every detail has meaning. In fact, to try and force meaning into each of the details produces strange and sometimes even demonstrably false doctrines. Parables are real-life stories from which one or possibly a few basic truths can be drawn. We read the parable of the sower. It's real to life. You could picture a sower in the field, even more so if you grew up in the agrarian society, and we'll talk more about that next week. But these 
type of things help to explain and orient us toward what a parable is. It's, it's a metaphor. It's figurative language. It's intended to represent what something is like to help teach some truth, some doctrine. But why parables? Why are they so important and why would Jesus employ them so frequently? First, think again to the nature of parables. They are extended metaphors, figures of speech. Figurative language, especially in story form, connects to our minds and our emotions and draws us into teaching in very unique ways. And whether we consciously realize it or not, this happens every time we listen to a story and are drawn in. Several authors and those who work with languages over the years, including C.S. Lewis and others, have noted that figurative language, this type of speaking, is that form of communication that is best suited for teaching and ingraining abstract, difficult, and new truths. Now, Christian writers, they've particularly pointed out how well-suited figurative language is for teaching us new theological truths particularly those concerning what is, and here's a big word, transcendent. What do we mean when we say transcendent? It transcends our experience. It is outside of our experience. It's to teach something that I have no frame of reference for understanding. I need figurative language to understand it. If someone has never seen a rhinoceros, how do you describe it? It is like this. It is like that. It's gray like an elephant. It's big like a hippo, but it's got a horn like a cow, but it's on its nose. And so you use these figurative languages and pictures to describe something that they have not experienced. And when it comes to theology, so much of what we know about God is beyond us. Yes, we see how he interacts with the world, and there's pieces of it, but to understand it, to comprehend it, to comprehend the greatness of who he is takes this transcendent language, this figurative language. And that's not an accident either. Because just as God created us to love stories and to love figures of speech, he also created language that we communicate with. And the kingdom of God would fit right into this transcendent concept. It's not something that you grow up experiencing every day. And so to explain these important spiritual components, Jesus employs a form of communication which he created that best allows for the explaining of spiritual truths. So the reason Jesus speaks in parables then is so that we would better understand the spiritual truths in the kingdom of God, right? Well, not so fast. The answer is yes and no. There is something else that these parables were intended to do, and they do do. In Matthew 13.10, we see a conversation that takes place between Jesus and his disciples. Matthew inserts this. This is really a parenthetical. It interrupts, interrupts that, that description of them being on the seashore with the waves lapping at the sea, Jesus sitting in the boat. It takes us and quickly shifts the scene to later that night when the disciples are sitting around Jesus and talking to him. What is introduced by verse 36 when they are back together in the house. And it's there that these disciples ask the same question we just asked, which is, why are you speaking in parables? 
Now, it's important to understand that this is, and remind ourselves, this is not the first time Jesus has spoken in parables. We've already seen these. In the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, 24 through 27, we saw a parable used. In chapter 9, verses 15 through 17. In chapter 11, verses 16 through 19. But what is different is now the shift is predominantly to parables. That's how Matthew described it. He spoke many things to them. How? In parables. And so it's this shift to where it's not just interspersed, but now it is dominating the form of communication that strikes the disciples as unusual. Why, Jesus, are you doing this? Jesus' answer to this question is somewhat surprising on a couple of different fronts. One, he notes that his use of parables is intended first to demonstrate the sovereignty of God in salvation by highlighting man's by, by highlighting God's involvement in opening the mind to understand, to comprehend, and to see the truths of Scripture. And secondly, perhaps even more shockingly, in verses 15 and 16, we see that it is likewise for the believer to open the mind, but for the unbeliever to conceal the truth and harden their hearts. And so we see these dual purposes to the parable. D.A. Carson notes that Matthew 13, 11 is strongly, as he says, predestinarian in its language. Notice there in 13, 11, we read, Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted. Notice the has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been granted. Now, what is missing from this verse? The subject. This is called a divine passive because you know who it is that has granted and has not granted, don't you? The subject doesn't have to be stated. In fact, there's almost an emphasis by leaving it out and just stating the passive. It draws our mind and attention to God is here at work. And really, this just echoes and imitates the way that God works all around us, doesn't it? The sun rose. The sun sets. We take our breath. We arrived safely this morning. How did that happen? It's because God is at work. See, all of our, most of our experience in life functions in the same way where God is continually at work. And so we see here the emphasis on divine sovereignty, on God being the one who opens the mind and grants to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but there are some to whom it has not been granted. What is fascinating to see through the end of verse 17, though, is how Jesus presents these two concepts, the sovereignty of God and salvation and the ongoing responsibility of man, the culpability. What's fascinating to me is that we make much ado about these as if they are in constant conflict with one another. You realize that conflict doesn't exist in the biblical writers? From the Old Testament to the New Testament, they can present the sovereignty of God in salvation and in life in perfect compatible harmony with the presentation of our responsibility. Now, it doesn't mean I can explain and understand every facet of that. It doesn't mean that I don't ask questions that I can't answer. But what it does say 
is that these two things exist in harmony in the economy of God. God is absolutely sovereign over everything. And yet persons intend to do things, they mean to do things, they say they're going to do things. One of the places this is illustrated most clearly in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 50. You remember at the death of Jacob, what do his brothers do? They come to him and they say, really come begging and pleading, and they try to even manipulate him. Even after all this transpired, they try to manipulate him one more time with regard to their father. What is, how does Joseph respond? It's like, calm down, calm down. Stop with your frantic mess. He says, do not be afraid. In verse 19 of chapter 50, am I in God's place? For you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. There is a perfect harmony there with the sinful action of man being completely under the control of a sovereign God. It's there and throughout so much of Scripture that we see man's designs and his culpability for his actions being in perfect harmony with God's sovereignty. The interweaving of man's plans and God's sovereignty is replete throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Verses 12 through 17 begin to provide an even more detailed explanation of the purpose of parables. We see in verse 12 that to those who have, that is, those who have understanding, those whose minds have been opened, more will be given. But those who do not have, that is, do not have this understanding, even what they do have will be taken away. Now, it's important to note and stop because there's a bunch of different pronouns that have been used here. What do, what do these all refer to? Well, in the second half, what they do not have or what they do have is taken away. It cannot be the same as what those in the first half of the verse already have, to which more is added. In other words, there's a difference here between what those have that is taken away in the second half and what those in the first half of the verse already have, have been given. So that which is taken away from this second half of group, the second group, these unbelievers, those whose minds have not been enlightened, must be a reference to something entirely different, most likely to the natural revelation of God, such as David describes in Psalm 19. To where the more, they are, the more they are exposed to the light of the gospel, the harder and more callous they become. The light becomes dimmer and dimmer and dimmer till they cannot even recognize in creation itself the sovereignty of God. We see that around us, don't we? Where even what has been given to them, that they should be able to comprehend, becomes imperceptible in the slightest. Even more plainly, Jesus notes in verse 13 that he speaks in parables in order to prevent those who have not repented from understanding the mysteries of the kingdom. Now that sounds harsh, doesn't it? It's something that, it makes you want to find a way to soften this. That's not what the text allows us to do. That's not what Jesus has here. It's a hard truth. Just because I want it to appeal to my sensibilities doesn't mean I can change it. Part of the reason for Jesus' teaching in parables was to prevent those who will not repent from understanding. That is to both further harden their hearts and to condemn them for their unbelief. To make them 
even in an even greater way, culpable for their sinfulness. As one commentator notes, he has increased their number, that is the number of parables, and made them even more difficult to comprehend. Jesus then refers to the prophecy of Isaiah, and he uses that language of fulfillment. We've seen that language several other times where he talks about it is being fulfilled or has been fulfilled. We've talked about just the semantic range, that is the, the different ways in which that term can be used, and the way it's typically used to refer to Old Testament quotations is to describe the, the greatest example or the greatest representation of that passage. And that would certainly be true of this generation of the Israelites, wouldn't it? Yes, Old Testament Israel had much revealed to them. They rejected him. And so their ears were closed, their hearts were hardened. But now, a generation that has the Son of God walking in their midst, performing miracles, signs and wonders and healings and teaching. This is who they reject. And so here we have being fulfilled the greatest possible example of what Isaiah prophesied. So Jesus notes that they hear but do not understand. They see but they cannot perceive. Augustine portrays this as the person who marvels at beautiful calligraphy in a foreign language. I, I would think of you know, Japanese calligraphy and a tapestry. I can marvel at its beauty. I can appreciate it as I look at it. But I am unable to comprehend. I'm unable to truly appreciate it. I can see it as beautiful. I can marvel at it, but I have no concept of what it says. No matter how long I stare at it, it remains a mystery. It's like traveling to a foreign country where you don't speak the language. You hear, but you do not understand. Parables then are not meant to clarify truth or make the gospel easier for unbelievers. Rather, they are meant to clarify the truth for disciples of Jesus Christ. And it will further obfuscate the truth for unbelievers and those that reject Jesus as Savior as their heart is hardened, much like you build calluses over time, where the more they hear these parables, the more they are exposed to the truth of the gospel, the more they hear it, the more callous and the thicker those calluses become, the harder they become. It's a sad picture of judgment. It's also a further reminder that it is a solely a work of God that changes the heart of the unbeliever. It reminds us of what we looked at last week, where we were reminded by the writer of Hebrews, by Peter, those who have tasted the goodness of God, have drawn near and then fall away. That is, they've, they've experienced the taste of what it is and then pull away. The second state has become worse for them than the first. Why? Because of the hardness that is setting in. It's that concrete that is setting harder and harder and harder. Well, this sad picture of judgment is contrasted in verses 16 to 17. It's contrasted to the disciples. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. 
Hearkening back to the language of the Beatitudes, Jesus pronounces blessing upon his disciples, those who hear and understand and follow after him. They are blessed because they have responded, but they only responded because faith was granted to them, apart from any work they could do. We saw that in the calling of the disciples. Jesus called them to follow him, called them to follow him. Again, we see this marriage of God's sovereignty and man's response presented in harmony. So what then are the purpose of parables? First, they serve as a litmus test, as a bellwether or barometer of one's salvation, testifying to God's sovereign work. As D.A. Carson notes, the parables spoken to the crowds do not simply convey information or mask it, but they challenge the hearers. It is a test. And the challenge this morning, first off, is have you responded to the call? If you are here this morning and you have never repented of your sins, you have not turned from your sinfulness, you've not called out to Christ as your Savior, as the only hope of salvation, then my My desire for you this morning, my call for you this morning, the call of the gospel for you this morning is to repent, turn to the Lord. You see, there's not anyone he will turn away. Don't harden your hearts. Don't convince yourself that there's always tomorrow. There is not one of us that knows what tomorrow might bring. And so call out to the Lord. Ask him for understanding if you have never done that. Repent of your sins. Ask him to give you an awareness of sin, a mourning over sin as we see in the Beatitudes. For those who have experienced the transforming work of the gospel, who call yourselves a disciple of Jesus Christ, look at verse 18. It may seem very simple. Hear then the parable of the sower. But it's here that Jesus begins to give those disciples more understanding. And we're going to look at that in more detail next week. But I want us to note something very important. This more understanding that we were introduced to in verse 12 that is given to disciples. Those who have been given the ability to understand, more understanding is then given. And we see that it's Jesus who gives that more understanding again and again throughout the rest of his ministry. It is Christ who increases this understanding. As he neared the end of his ministry, Jesus said in John 16, you can turn there for a second. It's a wonderful reminder. In John chapter 16, Jesus is nearing the end of his ministry and he's comforting the disciples as he's trying to reveal to them that he must suffer, he must die and go away. And you can imagine the concern, the terror, especially if these disciples have realized that the only way I can grow in my understanding, the only way I can be close to the kingdom of God is to have Christ near me. You can imagine the concern that they had. So what does Jesus say? He says in verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. How can that be, Jesus? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father 
and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. But I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit, comes, he will what? Guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he, speak, he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. Sounds much like what Jesus is doing. Sounds much like the adding more to our understanding, to an awareness of the kingdom of God, to what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God, to what it means to be a child of God. That's why the Spirit has been left there for our benefit. But going back to Matthew 13, notice this. Where are the disciples? The answer is simple, but it is profoundly important for us as believers. They are with Christ. They are seated at his feet. The believer's ability to understand, to increase in understanding, to grow in righteousness, to grow in faithfulness is always proportionate to his or her proximity to the Savior. Not only is there great rest and comfort in drawing near as Jesus promises at the end of chapter 11 when he says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Not only is there a great comfort, and by the way, imbued within that is the promise of learning and growing, But this drawing near is how we grow as believers. It's how we understand our role in the kingdom of God. It's how we grow in our love for Christ. It's how we are enriched. It's how our joy is made full and complete. All of it is by being near Christ. That's why John describes this in John 15 as, he says, abiding in the vine. Because it's only by abiding in the vine that you can bear fruit. So the question for you this morning is, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, are you drawing near to Jesus? As we enter into these studies of the parables, it is critically important. If you want to understand, if you want to grow in your understanding, if you want to grow in your knowledge of the kingdom of God, if you want to be better equipped as a father, as a mother, as a friend, as an employee, as a business owner, whatever role the Lord may have you at this time, if you want to grow in your ability, draw near to the Lord. Do not miss the connection between understanding and being blessed and being in Jesus' presence. You cannot have one without the other. But how do you do this? How do you draw near to Jesus? I mean, that's the question, right? Okay, I, I need to do this, but how do I do this? I mean, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. How do I draw near to him? Well, let me ask you this in response. How would you draw near to a friend? What would you do to increase or grow your relationship with your friend, with your husband, with your wife? What are the ingredients to a close and intimate relationship? 
Well, at the forefront is what? Time. Time. Are you spending time in prayer? Time reading the Bible? Time meditating upon Scripture? If you're not doing that, start there. Secondly, are you doing what the other loves? I mean, it's one thing for me to spend time with my wife, which is wonderful, it's important, but then do I do, I do things that show her that I love her? Do I pay attention to those small details that make her smile, that make her long to be close? What does Jesus say in 1 John? Or what does John say in 1 John? And Jesus, he's really repeating what Jesus has said in his ministry. If you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. Are you doing the things that Jesus loves? That's how you draw near to someone. That's how you grow that relationship. And thirdly, and this is not an exhaustive list. You could add to this. But thirdly, are you spending time with the people of God and the family of God like we discussed last week? Is that a priority in your life? Do your other plans, do you orient your plans around spending time with the family of God? Because it should be a priority. God loved and has poured out his love on each of us. And he calls us to love one another. We can't do that by being apart from one another. We must be with one another, loving one another, serving one another, serving alongside as we serve and do outreach beyond the walls of this church. And when we do these things, there's this development where the more consistently we, we practice these things, we spend time, we engage more wholeheartedly and regularly and thoroughly in obedience. The more we spend time with one another as we practice this th- these things, the greater our love for Christ grows. And what's neat is the greater our love grows, the more we want to do these things. And it's just, it's this reciprocal thing that just continues to grow my love for Christ and in effect the outpouring, the fruit the, of, of that love. This is part of what Jesus means when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yes, it involves doing things, but he makes us love doing it. So as we enter into chapter 13 especially, which is filled with parables, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we should be excited because there is much for us to learn. The question is, is how close have you drawn to Christ? In the study ahead, are you going to grow 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the, the amazing variety you've given in language and communication. That you would create a figure of speech that appeals to us in such a unique way that can have such a multifaceted purpose to to provide that barometer and that test to close the eyes and harden the hearts of some while opening the eyes, warming the hearts of others. Father, we give you praise for that. Father, we do pray that if there are any here this morning that their heart 
who have not bowed their knee to you, that their heart would not be hardened, but that you would shine the light of the gospel in their heart, that your spirit would do its work of regeneration, that they would repent and return to you this morning. And for those of us that call you our Lord and Savior, who claim to be your disciple, help us in drawing near to you to faithfully do that. We thank you for your spirit that you have given to us, that guides us and teaches us and opens our mind to understand these things. Help us and impress upon us the earnestness and need for us to draw near to you in order to experience the full blessing you desire to give to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.